Welcome to Talk Plus Water, the podcast associated with Texas Plus Water, which is a publication of the Meadow Center for Water and the Environment at Texas State University, the Texas Water Journal, and the Texas Water Resources Institute at Texas A&M University. My name is Todd Vodler. I'm the editor-in-chief of Texas Plus Water and the Texas Water Journal. And I'm very happy to welcome today to the seventh podcast, my guest, uh, Laura Fowler, who is an attorney and mediator, as well as a professor at Penn State, Uni- uh, Penn State University in the law school and the Institutes of Energy and Environment. And she has been working on questions related to water uh, for a while now, and she's going to start off by hopefully telling us a little bit about the work that she's been doing. Uh, welcome, Laura. It's good to talk to you this morning. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me on board. So tell us a little bit about the things that you've done in water. I know that you you have uh, uh, been uh at Penn State for a while, but you were in Oregon working for a number of years there before you uh, went into uh, the academic arena. Yeah, um, I actually got my start um, really working in water uh, growing up in southern Idaho, and we spent a lot of time messing about in boats. We moved to Oregon when I was in middle school, and when I was in high school, I actually had to write a history paper uh, and wrote a history paper of the history of California water challenges, uh, which was trying to figure out how 
rights. And so the time it was one of the fastest sort of growing counties in the country, and there was effectively a moratorium on any further water development. That actually piqued my interest in uh, working on water conflict uh, in part as a mediator, a neutral third party to help people come together. And so I went to law school with the idea of not being a lawyer per se, but of being a mediator and doing dispute resolution associated with water. Um, so we moved actually to Seattle, Washington, um, where we went back to school. I was working on my law degree at the same time my husband was working on his PhD in geography. Uh, and so while I was in law school, I was able to actually focus on negotiation and mediation training with the idea, again, of doing mediation in the water world. I graduated and had the good fortune to be able to um, start working with a, a law firm, a medium-sized law firm based out of Tacoma, Washington, Gordon Thomas Honeywell, LLP. Um, they also had a Seattle office, and so I was in their Seattle office. But working a lot with my colleague, Jim Waldo, uh, who's done a lot of work in California on water issues, again, primarily as a mediator. Um, and so had the good fortune of working on uh, pretty critical issues of water quality in the San Joaquin Valley of California, um, how to, who is entitled to use and store groundwater in the Los Angeles area in the central and west coast groundwater basins. Um, we also worked with uh, state water contractors between North, dealing with a contract provision called the Area of Origin uh, provision that pitted Northern California water contractors against Southern California water contractors. Uh, and again, the privilege of working as a mediator, a neutral third party in this um, pretty challenging uh, questions to help people thread the needle on questions that really affected science, law, policy, politics, and economics, and how do you actually move forward to get things done. I also did mediation work in Oregon and Washington. Um, for example, served as um, a facilitator for the Chehalis Basin uh, River Flood Authority, whose job was to try and figure out how to address flood, 100 years worth of flooding in a pattern of increasingly catastrophic floods in the Chehalis Basin of Washington State. Um, we moved to State College, Pennsylvania, Penn State, um, in 2012, uh, so I've been here since then, working both at the law school, Penn State Law, as well as the Penn State Institutes of Energy and Environment on questions of water, energy, and dispute resolution. Wow, well, you've, you've done pretty much everything that you could do in terms of water disputes along the West Coast. Uh, what do you... I'm just curious, what do you see now that you are at Penn State? What do you see in terms of the differences between what's happening in the Western United States with regard to water and what's happening in the Eastern United States? I think that's a, that's a great question. And one of the things that struck me most about being both a Western water lawyer and a mediator um, has worked so much on the West Coast and then to move to the East Coast is to realize you know, everybody here in the East Coast is like, oh, we've got water quality questions, um, for example, and I'll, I'll speak later about the Chesapeake Bay, but we also have water quantity questions. Um, and so when I'm talking with a lot of my Western colleagues, I laughingly say the wild, wild west is not the west, it's actually the east, um, where a lot of times we really don't have a good handle in the eastern U.S. on who is using what water and how much, what has been promised. Uh, a number of eastern states have registration laws, for example, if you're using a certain amount of, above a certain amount of water. But we really have no good handle um, on how much water people are using. There's a tremendous amount 
no well drilling standards. Thought you could move to Pennsylvania and drill a well in many parts of the state, and you'd be qualified to do so. Hmm. Um, and so it's been a real eye opener, I think, to move to move to the East Coast and to look around and realize the question of water scarcity of drought is actually a pretty critical question. Right now, it's not. It's pretty wet, pretty soggy in a big chunk of the east, eastern U.S. Uh, but 2016, if you look, for example, at the great satellites or if you look at the, the level of drought up and down, uh, it wasn't the west coast of the U.S. that was showing up as drought. It was the east. So what about you know, kind of the the West as being the example for people in the Eastern United States. I mean, it seems like, you know, the institutions that have evolved in the Western United States to ha- handle water scarcity, um, you know, might provide examples for the Eastern United States in some ways. In other ways, they're probably not applicable, but 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 the expertise is certainly there. I'm, you know, curious uh, do you see a lot of folks who are uh, practitioners in the Western United States now kind of focusing on uh, the needs of the Eastern United States? There are a handful. I think um, someone like a Matt Draper, who's out of New York City, uh, his, his dad is in practice also in New Mexico, um, that they have really that East Coast, West Coast practice. Um, there are a handful of, of Eastern water lawyers um, scattered up and down the East Coast, but the, 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 the legal bar of people who practice water law in the East is pretty limited. Um, and I teach water law at Penn State Law, and there, there are a number of people, again, who teach water law in the Eastern U.S., but not that many uh, compared to almost a mandatory course in most Western law schools. What about the the model of the institutions themselves? Uh, do uh, some of the eastern states look at what's been done, for example, in Oregon, where you, you were working for a number of years, and uh, say, hey, you know, some of what they were doing there is probably a pretty good model for us in the future? Water flowing into the Chesapeake Bay, more than 50%, comes from the Susquehanna 
learned most of that is in Pennsylvania. And so what you have is an interesting overlay of state jurisdiction. Uh, so for example, both Pennsylvania and New York have a registration system and a federal overlay through the state watershed commissions. So for example, as hydraulic fracturing came on the scene in Pennsylvania, you have the Susquehanna River Basin Commission looking at it saying, this has a potential impact on water supplies, water quantity, particularly in smaller headwater streams, we're gonna start regulating that. And so for where there had been a bar for bigger water users, 30,000 gallons of water per day over a 30-day moving average, with hydraulic fracturing, they basically said, we don't know what the impacts are gonna be, we're gonna start from any amount of water taken, we will actually regulate and require a permit. So again, you have actually a kind of dual system of both state and then federal or regional uh, bodies helping oversee that. And certainly that work uh, that you just mentioned uh, with the commissions is probably related to work that you've done with the Chesapeake. Why don't you why don't you tell us about the Chesapeake Bay work? Sure. Uh, so the Chesapeake Bay um, is one of the largest estuaries in the United States and in the world. A friend and colleague who said the Chesapeake Bay program basically says, look, if you took a piece of paper and you, you put it flat out, the Chesapeake Bay is as deep in comparison with that paper as it is wide, um, just to have a visual of how shallow it is. Again, a lot of the freshwater inflow, I think a lot of the focus has been how do we restore the bay, and that's been from the 1960s and the 1970s. About a decade or a little bit more than that ago, um, the, the focus went from how do we restore the estuary, the actual uh, area where the salt water and freshwater uh, engage with each other to, wow, if we're going to actually address the issues, we need to be thinking about the water coming in from the greater Chesapeake Bay watershed. And so I think for a lot of years, Pennsylvania certainly had been involved, but a lot of the focus has shifted upstream. Again, I mentioned that the Susquehanna River is more than 50% of the inflow of fresh water. And so the focus has really come upstream to look at, well, what's happening in Pennsylvania? Huge amount of work over you know the last 30 or 40 years on point sources, um, wastewater treatment plants and other things like that. And certainly the, the, you know, just this week, actually, a new uh, Bay Barometer came out indicating that a lot of the efforts are making good progress. However, what you're also seeing is a huge increase in stormwater runoff and impacts in non-point sources, both from agricultural and municipal stormwater. And that's an area where, as that, you know, you've got a storm that drops multiple inches of rain in, in a handful of hours will flush a lot of nutrients, phosphorus, nitrogen, and sediment down into the bay. This past year was incredibly wet and very rainy, um, as much as the west was dry in parts, the west or the east had water just... Um, storms just stuck uh, for weeks at a time, and that flushed a lot of nutrients down into the bay. So people are looking at that to see what the impact is. Um, I am on the Chesapeake Bay Scientific and Technical Advisory Committee, um, wearing, if you will, a social science impact or social science hat from that, given the amount of work I've done with stakeholder engagement. So it's been really interesting to both be understanding what Pennsylvania's perspective is, but also engaging at the Bay Program level to hear what's happening across the whole Bay Program. So you mentioned land use practices are now becoming a focus. I, I my impression of had been, and, and I, I was probably incorrect about this, that um, that those practices had been a focus for a couple of decades now. Uh, 
And so there, there's now, I guess, a greater effort on the regulatory side with regard to uh, non-point source land use practices. Yeah, that's, that's kind of a snapshot of living in Texas. You're going from mm-hmm. a drought to a flood and and back all the time. So, and part of it then becomes, well, how do you manage, for example, um, increased growth and development and the potential increase for impervious service, which can lead to more flood? Right. How do you restore and protect a potential aquifer recharge areas? How do you manage climate change? Again, one of the big questions for the Chesapeake Bay is, what are the impacts, for example, on climate change? If you plan to Of what they're pondering. 
just a, a question about some of the uh, solutions there. You know, somebody who worked for land trust for for a number of years, are, are land trusts engaged in that process with regard to the Chesapeake, or are are land trusts working to try to preserve riparian areas and and work with landowners to um, improve their uh, land use practices? Yes, um, yeah, and we have, we have, you name it, we've got people involved with the Chesapeake. Um, you know, the Chesapeake Bay watershed is a part of six states plus Washington, D.C. You have very, very local entities to really big entities and everything in between. Um, local land trusts, for example, here in the area that I'm living in, um, the Center County Farmland Preservation Trust is working to, to keep farms active and productive, but also protect um you know, sort of open space. The questions of the land use is, there's three big questions that Chesapeake Bay is, is working, trying to figure out. Well, we, we, set, we set targets for reductions of nitrogen, phosphorus, and total of solids for the bay. Um, there was a midpoint assessment in the year 2017 with the goal that all these practices are in place by 2025, and, and we're strengthened to see over time, because the, the impact, the benefits of such practices, again, installing buffers, planting cover crops, uh, a whole range of things will take some time to see. So we're aiming towards a 2025 goal in reduction of phosphorus, nitrogen, and total dissolved solids. But the concern is those goals may be exacerbated by changes in land use, uh, changes in climate, and then a third confounding factor that the states collectively are working to try and figure out is how to handle um, dams on the Susquehanna River that are effectively dynamically full of sediment behind them. So the poster child for that is the Conowingo Dam, which is the lowermost dam on the Susquehanna River. And so that's not, a, that's not an issue that's isolated to just the Chesapeake Bay, which is there have been more runoff um, of sediment and more buildup of sediment behind dams across the whole U.S. and, in fact, globally. Um, it ranges from where you are, but how to handle that sediment that is um, launched behind a dam is a huge question. It's not only a huge scientific question, but also a political and economic question. And it seems like the... Uh the movement to remove dams that are no longer serving their original function, that, that a lot of that uh, movement is uh, seeing success in that part of the world. And so I'm curious about that. Is that, is that integrated into the efforts to improve the Chesapeake, or is that just kind of something that's, that's going on more or less independent from that effort?
renewal process, but what to do with that sediment has also come up in that process. Um, so it is partially tied to, you know, how do we restore our streams um, and deal with those questions of legacy sediment, um, but it's also, you know, recreation and access and I think private property questions as well. You know, there's a, not to, to, to spend too much time on this, but there's, there's a, a lot of emotion uh, surrounding the dam removal issue. You know, I've always kind of been, uh, uh, you know, interested in how uh, there are a lot of people who, who look at, you know, dam removals as a threat to projects which are, are you know, functional and, you know, flood control projects are doing what they're intended to do. And then, you know, maybe some on the other side about <clears throat> removing dams like that that may still be uh, serving their original purpose. To me, it seems like, you know, dams are tools and, uh, you know, they may outlive their usefulness. And at some point, you know, they've got a useful life. And, you uh, it's not, uh, it's not something that, you know, we should really be afraid of thinking of it in that way that, you know, uh, once they outlive their usefulness, maybe be time to, you know, remove them. Sure. Yeah. And if you look at, I mean, a lot of the dam removal projects that I've actually watched pretty closely, wasn't involved, but watched, um, on the Sandy River in Oregon, took a long time to negotiate and to figure out, but I think they looked at the cost of upgrading those to allow for fish passage uh, and PGE, not PGE, which is in California, but PGE, which is in, in Oregon, uh, based out of Portland, did the analysis and basically said, hey, you know, this, this isn't producing enough electricity to merit the cost it's going to take to upgrade it. Um, it took a lot of work and a lot of collaboration. Julie Kyle, who's now passed away and deceased, but helped spearhead that in, in Oregon to, to remove those. That was one of the larger dam removal projects for a while. Um, now you've seen, for example, on the White Salmon River in Washington State, that dam has been removed, Condit Dam on the White Salmon, or the Elwha Dam on the Olympic Peninsula. Uh, particularly, I mean, the Elwha Dam removal had, was a partnership of a lot of different people to figure out what to do with a, a, a dam that was illegally put in in the first place in the 19, I think around 1914, and had a huge impact on the fish runs in the area, a huge impact on the tribal interests uh, and local fisheries. As that dam has come out, uh, the restoration, the natural ecosystem restoration in that area has been pretty phenomenal. There's great footage um, of people who have filmed and tracked that. Um, and so if people are looking at the cooperative effort it has taken to figure out, well, how do we handle potentially obsolete facilities and uh, restore the ecosystem? Uh, I think the results from some of those projects have actually been fairly astonishing for people. So let's go ahead and uh, move down south a little bit and talk about the litigation before the Supreme Court between Georgia and Florida and that whole dispute uh, between Georgia, Florida, and Alabama over the uh, ACF Basin. And so why don't you tell us, and you're going to have to start off with telling us what ACF stands for, because uh, I always have a hard time getting it right. And uh, then also talk a little bit about how the, the litigation at the Supreme Court may or may not really match the overall dispute. Yeah, the ACF stands for the Alabama Supreme Court, 
basic question about that when I when I read uh, the filings a few years ago my first reaction was I, I can't understand why Florida didn't sue the core initially and I think a lot a lot of people here have been kind of surprised by that do you have any insight on that that litigation now I know that the original special master Ralph Lancaster uh, passed away recently but he concluded his report and sent it to the Supreme Court and yeah, they took a so look Ralph at Lancaster it Ralph Lancaster was appointed the special 
curious about all that as well why it, it ended up with the judge out in New Mexico you know what the 
what the connection was and all that. But, uh, you know, you mentioned um, Texas versus New Mexico. You know, both of those cases were heard on the same day at the Supreme Court. And uh, we're not going to discuss that today, but but we will in upcoming podcasts. But that was definitely a big day at the Supreme Court for for um, water rights. Special Master Lancaster essentially said that it's hard to it's hard to be sure that if Georgia does something, it's going to be uh, beneficial to Florida because the Corps is managing the reservoirs and and it may or may not be helpful. And well, and that, that was a big question because partly um, you know the Corps of Engineers had had provided some briefing in the case, basically saying, hey, we you know we are. of the new special master who's the federal judge from New Mexico and uh, he may or may not have another hearing. Okay. Gotcha. Now, uh, I was, you know, curious. The other day, the Georgia Assembly voted to reopen discussions with Tennessee and North Carolina on whether the border between those states should be moved which I, I think in the, for the hopes of Georgia, they're hoping that that would shift the border north so that part of the Tennessee River, just I guess a little bend of the river, would be in Georgia and give Georgia uh, access to the water in the Tennessee River. Uh, you know, I looked at that and, you know, I, I kind of think, is that... You know, is that really a serious effort? Do they, I mean, do they really believe that the other states would be willing to, to cede some territory? And, you know, has, has that happened before? Yeah, so this kind of survey mistake is, is not unheard of. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I 
of the Warm Springs, um, Confederate tribes of Warm Springs with the state of Oregon for their water rights and the federal government. And one of the hangups in that particular um, negotiation actually was a, a survey mistake made 150 years or something before, right? Where the surveyor said, you know, the line goes from this point to this point, but somebody had made an error. And in that case, it was an error of a tract of land of thousands of acres. Um, you know, so the early surveying, are, are, is there a potential for mistakes? Sure. Does this show up in, in lots of different circumstances? Sure. Um, it is interesting in looking at it. Are the other states likely to say, yeah, sure, go ahead and take some of our territory? No. In, right. in looking at this question, um, which you gave me beforehand, Tennessee, for example, if the line is redrawn, this would impact some portion of the city of Chattooga, for example. Um, and so it's not exactly likely to go over, and certainly the newspaper accounts from Tennessee indicate that they're not, um, this does not give them warm and fuzzy feelings about the potential for losing a, a chunk of their territory. Um, and one of the questions that often comes up, too, is over water allocation in general, is, is a state doing as much as it's supposed to to actually reduce its de demand? What's the water conservation, for example, uh, that they're implementing um, and reducing their demand in other areas? Historically, a lot of the time um, it was, hey, we need more water, we need to go somewhere else and get it. California is a good example of this. But as technology has changed, as norms and expectations have changed, it's no longer possible just to go get water from someplace else. You, in fact, need to live within the amount that's available in that local area or that had been previously developed. So I think you see this border dispute as, hey, maybe this is our silver bullet for providing more water for, for Georgia. I don't see it being an easy way forward, given the very, very likely resistance that you can already see, actually, in newspaper accounts about this from the other two states, Tennessee in particular. Right, right. And uh, on behalf of uh, our, our many listeners in Chattanooga, uh, where I have friends, uh, I just want to say I think it's unlikely anything's going to happen with that. You know, Texas has got kind of Texas and Mexico and I guess California and Arizona, I guess, have a also there's a historical issue with regard to surveying the state. Not that, you know anything would ever happen with that but uh, I know that, that 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 issue kind of issue comes up a lot of different places and it and uh, doesn't re ever really lead to anything significant right well and I apologize because I misspoke earlier I said Chattanooga and I meant Chattanooga um, but it's interesting too because one of there's of the six U.S. Supreme Court cases that are pending right now related to water two of them are eastern I already mentioned the, the, the suit from Florida versus Georgia as one, but the other actually deals with Tennessee. And that's the first ever groundwater case that I know you've talked, I think, with Michael Campana about before. Right. Um, but that's dealing really with the city of Memphis's water supply and, and the aquifer in that area and the impact between Tennessee and Mississippi over groundwater. And that's an area that I think is actually really interesting and growing set of concerns. Uh, so what caught my attention actually again in the East Coast was the whisper of a potential dispute between, I believe, Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio over groundwater in that area. I was like, wow, okay, we're starting to see right. more reliance and dependence on groundwater and that affecting the state, you know, sort of state security and water, if you will. Well, we've also, <clears throat> you know, uh, we've also, um, in the podcast 
covered actually our first podcast a, a little bit of the issue having to do with transboundary aquifers between Texas and 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 Mexico, which are you know a whole new area of emerging um, interest. And uh, you know, I look at Mississippi and Tennessee, and you know, there's some really fascinating questions there. But but nothing has really happened with that case yet, has it? I mean, it's I, there is a special master, but I don't think uh, special master has has made a ruling yet. No, I haven't seen anything on that. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's not just a U.S. and it's not just a U.S. and it's and either Mexico or Canadian question. This is a global question. Um, so one of the one of the joys of teaching something like water law, we actually have a fair number of international students who are here at Penn State Law. And so last fall when I was teaching water law, I gave my students the assignment of you need to write a, a paper on a, a legal question associated with water. I don't care where in the world it is. And so one of my students who is from um, Pakistan basically looked at uh, groundwater allocation between India and Pakistan in the Indus River Basin. And she came back and basically said, look, you know, there may be a surface water agreement on how to allocate water between these two areas. There is no groundwater allocation. And yet this is, you know, the second most impacted groundwater basin in the world with a huge number of people living in that, in that area and heavily dependent on groundwater. And so you have quickly declining groundwater levels, a high level of potential conflict, and no guidance. So recently, I saw that the the number thus far of transboundary aquifers that have been mapped is 600 internationally, and uh, I guess that that number is is moving upwards. So uh, this is a good uh, point to pivot to uh, your Fulbright research and. And uh, by the way, congratulations again on uh, receiving uh, the Fulbright Scholarship. Can you tell us what you're going to be doing and where you're going to be doing? But but could you start off with, you know, just telling us what that process is like? Because I, you know, I often hear about Fulbright scholarships, and you know, I don't really know. Uh, you know the details of how that program works, and and uh, you know how the the individuals are are uh, selected. Sure. Yeah. No. Thank you so much. Um, and I'm super excited about it. We're going to be we're going to be in Sweden. We, um, my husband, and then two kids, one of whom just turned twelve yesterday, and then my daughter is about to turn nine. Uh, in in Sweden, living in Stockholm um, for the next academic year, basically from August 2019 to around June-ish or so um, 2020. And the idea of applying for a Fulbright actually came up. My husband was eligible for a sabbatical. Um, I'm a fixed-term faculty member here at Penn State, so I'm not necessarily eligible for a sabbatical, but, but I've done so much work in the United States with water and um, dispute resolution, conflict management, um, and I really, you know, this is an area that I'm, I'm interested in and passionate about, but one, I actually was an exchange student in Finland uh, in high school and happened to actually take a trip um, from Helsinki, a ferry trip from Helsinki to Stockholm, and arrived during what turned out to be uh, Stockholm International Water Institute's first annual World Water Week, mm. and uh, I've been fascinated ever since. And, tracking what's been happening 
representing in Stockholm and in Sweden in general on water issues. So when we as a family were talking about, well, where could we go globally, kind of anywhere in the world that would match both my interests but also my husband's interests um, for time abroad, um, we came up with Sweden in general um, because there's so much work going on with water in that area for me and population and demography for him. So I applied for the Fulbright um, after talking with a number of people and thinking, you know, all right, this, this, is, a, this is a long shot, um, but let's put together a proposal. And so the proposal that I put together is really focused on water security, thinking about both water quantity, but also water quality. Uh, so someone like Aaron Wolf, who's at Oregon State, says, while the rhetoric of water scarcity is that it's going to lead to war, when you actually look at it, in more uh, real-world practices, it's actually led to cooperation. Right. Uh, the rhetoric may be rattle, saber-rattling, but the actual practice is that scarcity for quality or quantity purposes tends to bring people together. So I really wanted to better understand how that was playing out, particularly as we're seeing climate change impacts around the world. Um, what's what can we do for better stakeholder engagement? Um, I was privileged to attend World Water Week in Stockholm last year, last August, and a lot of people were like, well, we should be engaging with stakeholders. Like, okay, great. Um, nobody has a magic fairy wand, or magic wand that basically says, okay, stakeholders, we're engaged. It can be a long, careful process to think about how do you really, who should be involved in that discussion? How do you bring people together and how do you do it carefully and methodically to not make a problem worse? And so, you know, again, what I've loved about the work that I've been privileged to do and the people I've been privileged to work with is the creative points where people are like, aha, what about this? What about that? To allow um, people to better, A, understand the real challenges they're dealing with, but B, find and implement real solutions. And so the Fulbright is really focused on what's happening in other parts of the world. Um, I'm actually going to be partnered with the University of Uppsala, uh, just about 70 kilometers north of Stockholm. They have a peace and conflict studies program. And my counterpart there is Ashok Swain, who's done a lot of work on environmental peace building, uh, which is different from the, the mediation and negotiation world that I've worked in. So I'm super excited to actually get to talk with people, uh, not only in Sweden, but also in the broader European setting, but global setting, um, to deal with really very critical water questions that are playing out all across the world. Oh, that sounds great. And and uh, I don't know if you are aware of the uh, podcast we did last month was with uh, Lena Salome, who uh, is in Paris, and she was a UNESCO water mediator for 17 years, among a bunch of other things. And and uh, so um, so I've had, uh, you know, two programs in a row where, um, you know, this has been um, part of the discussion. So how long are you going to be? Is it a full year or, or less? Basically, but yeah, mostly basically a full year. And it, this is something that was important to both my husband and I have been exchange students abroad. I lived in Japan and I lived in Finland and he has lived in Italy. Um, and so it's something we wanted to expose our kids to, um, something we wanted to do, chance to take a little bit of a, you know, sort of check out of your own life and try something else for a little bit. You had asked about the process of the Fulbright. I mean, partly it's identifying what and where. I think I learned a lot through that process, which is you need a partner institution. You need some 
where, you know, I'm talking about funding is from the U.S. government, or most of the funding is from the U.S. government. Some funding is put in sometimes from the, the local partner institution. But if you look at the, the what Fulbright scholars are working on, it's uh, the marvelous list of all sorts of topics, from, you know, deep in the scientific world to the arts and everywhere in between. Well, I'm jealous, uh, as you probably already figured out, <clears throat> that you're going to be spending a year in Sweden studying um, water issues like that. Uh, you're going to have to uh, give some thought to maybe uh, telling us what you did and coming back on the show in a year or so so we can, we can learn about that. Yeah, and we've been actually thinking about not only for ourselves but our kids of, you know, do we do we do a blog about what we're learning and what we're experiencing? How do we capture the experience actually as we go? Um, because they're already starting to, to reach out and sort of bridge ties. I mentioned earlier that the Chesapeake um, in some ways is not so different from the Baltic. Uh, we at Penn State have quite a number of connections with the folks in the Baltic and Finland and Sweden in particular. Um, how do we how do we bridge those and all get smarter, better, faster? Um, the, the types of questions that we're wrestling with in any given watershed or river basin or estuary are not so different. And so, what has worked, um, you know, for people to either on the scientific side or on the, the human engagement side? These are people questions at the end of the day. And so, bringing people together and, and learning from each other, I think, is, a, is one of the great opportunities of this kind of That is a, a great place to stop, um, and uh, maybe I can figure out a way to help share some of that. I guess you're going to be um, sending out uh, some notices on social media, Twitter, and all that. Yeah, I'm active on Twitter, um, and that's a good place. I'm certainly working to figure out what other mechanisms might make sense, so if any listeners have ideas, I'm, I'm certainly open to that as well. You want to give everybody your Twitter handle? So they can call uh, you? It, sure. It is at uh, Fowler, F-O-W-L-E-R underscore Lara. Uh, I think there's not so many people who are uh, named Lara Fowler and, and tweeting regularly about water and conflict dispute resolution questions. So. Great. Great. Well, Laura, thank you so much for for uh, taking uh, an hour out of your time to be part of uh, Talk Plus Water. Um, you know, this is um, one of the first episodes where I didn't have a barking dog outside my window or somebody mowing their lawn or, or, or the equipment malfunctioning during the middle of the broadcast. So uh, hopefully um, that's the the trend from now on that I've mastered the technology uh, with uh, this interview and future interviews will go just as smoothly. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and for your interest in all of these areas. And uh, yeah, we've got to all figure this out better together. I agree. I agree. So this has been uh, Talk Plus Water podcast number seven. My guest today was Laura Fowler, who is a professor at Penn State University. I will have someone else talking about water in a, in a month from now. Uh, I hope you will uh, check back on iTunes or through Texas or by, just by uh, Googling Texas Plus Water uh, and, or Talk Plus Water to find the podcast. 
Thanks again for joining us. My name's Ty Butler. We'll talk soon.